we find that Jesus is talking to us about finding what is good. Now, the passage of Scripture gives us an invitation to pray it, gives us an invitation to pray because of who God is. And what we'll see as we go through this text is this, God is a good and loving Father. Now, for some of you, that idea of a good and loving Father maybe doesn't translate because perhaps the Father that you experienced through your youth wasn't very good and wasn't very loving. There are some people, when we talk about God being Father, rather than looking and saying that this is something I can connect with, they think back on perhaps a harsh or cruel father, and they have difficulty picturing God as a good father, a kind father, a loving father. Many of us were blessed with really good fathers. When I hear the word father, I am able to have a beautiful picture of a father because of the father that God gave to me. I had a wonderful, kind, loving father. But whatever your past is immaterial because God is good, and He shares that with us in Scripture as we come to this text. So, as we begin in this passage that begins at verse 7, we're going to, first of all, look into prayer, and we're going to see that God invites us to access Him through prayer, and He asks us to petition Him for His goodness. Look carefully at the seventh verse, and notice what it says. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, as we come to this first part of the passage, and we're invited to speak to God about our needs, to petition Him, what the Word of God is sharing with us in this text is something that we find in many passages of Scripture. It's an invitation to talk to God through prayer. Sometimes I think we get the wrong impression of prayer. This is the second time that Jesus has addressed prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. First, He gave us the Lord's Prayer, but now as we move into this part of the passage, He's talking about coming to God consistently in prayer. And that's what we find really brought out in this text. You see, when the Word of God says, ask and it will be given to you, something that we might miss in our English Bibles is this concept. The word translated ask is in a particular way framed in the Greek to mean keep asking. The idea is we are invited by God to come consistently before Him in prayer and to lift up our needs, to raise our needs, and to keep doing it. Now, some of you might remember earlier in the sixth chapter when we were talking about prayer, we were warned against having a kind of prayer that was vain repetition. Of course, when the Scripture says keep asking, it's not talking about vain repetition. We have to view this text in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Vain repetition was the repetition of a formula in hopes that in some way by repeating the formula, God's hand would be forced to do what I ask of Him. Here, the idea is quite different. As I come to God and as I pray, as I seek, as I ask, as I request things of God, I'm not coming before Him to say, God, this is the idea that I have in mind, and this is how I think you should execute it, and this is all that I would like to see you bring about. That isn't the kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about. 
You see, in the context of the book of Matthew, and in particular the Sermon on the Mount, prayer isn't about me bending God's will to mine. Prayer is me accessing the resources of a good father, coming to him in prayer, and then understanding that this God that I approach has my good in mind. As a matter of fact, if I come to God with the wrong attitude about prayer, I can't expect to see God answer that prayer in the way that I'm demanding that He answer it. We find this in the book of James when it talks about prayer, and it talks about some of the conditions that can short-circuit the prayer life. James writes, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then look at this. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, prayer isn't about a selfishness that comes and says, God, here are the boxes that I want you to check when it comes to my prayer requests. It's coming before God and saying to God, I want my will to be shaped and molded by your will. And I'm praying to you, I'm asking to you in a spirit of dependence, looking to receive good from you because you are a good God. That's the way we should approach prayer. In fact, John writes the following. This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of Him. Now, there's a caveat to asking according to the Word of God. And that caveat is this, I need to ask God according to His will. In other words, overriding all of my requests is this understanding, that God is a wise and good God, and He has a purpose and a plan that unfolds that is far superior to my purpose and my plan. So in advance, when I pray and I ask of God, I come seeking the will of God to be accomplished. This is how God wants us to approach Him in prayer as we ask. But Jesus goes on, and not only does He invite us to ask, and it will be given to you, He goes on to say, knock, and it will be opened to you. Now here we find an illustration, a picture of a door. And what the Word of God is encouraging us with about prayer in this particular statement is this, we have access to God. God does not close the door on us when we seek Him in prayer. I find that to be so comforting. God isn't some unapproachable deity who's in heaven waiting to slam the door in my face. God is a loving God, a good God. And as such, our God is looking to open up fellowship with us, open up access to Him, give us the opportunity to come before Him in prayer at any time. You know, as I think about that statement, knock, and that will be open to you, I think about the Creator, the God of the universe, the one 
who made everything around us personalizing an invitation to me that I can come into His presence. That is the privilege of prayer. We're invited by God in many passages of Scripture to come to Him in prayer because we have access to Him. The writer of Hebrews went to great length to discuss the access that we have to God. And he shares with us that we have this access to God because we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And as he's discussing this theology with us, he writes Hebrews chapter 4, which says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, who is our high priest? Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands our trials and our difficulties, and He has opened the way for us to come into the presence of God because He is sinless and perfect. The text goes on to say this, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that a great passage? That's what it means to knock and the door will be opened. God isn't about to slam the door shut to access Him in our time of need. We can come before God in prayer and receive the good things that God has for us. Now, as the text goes on, Jesus continues to talk about prayer, but He frames it in a way that helps us understand God's heart when it comes to prayer. And that is this. I need to picture the Father as the one who is good. Look at what the text goes on to say in verse 9. Which of you if his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Now, the illustration that Jesus is giving us is portraying God as a caring father who provides for the needs of his child. So, picture this. A lot of the stones in the Middle East would look sort of like a loaf of bread, right? And so, a child comes to his father and says, Dad, I'm, I'm hungry. I need something to eat. And so the father says, here, and gives him a stone. That would be a cruel joke, wouldn't it? Especially if somebody's really hungry. To give them something that resembles a loaf of bread, but in reality, something you break your teeth on. Not able to have any good use whatsoever. That's not the way God is. The illustration also gives that of a fish and a serpent. If a child comes to their father and says, hey, I'm hungry. I need a fish. He's not going to give him something harmful, hurtful, a snake. Now, how does that apply to us? What misconceptions might Jesus be talking about that could apply to us? And I'll give you a couple. Have you ever heard someone say, never pray for patience? Because God will unload on you a torrent of bad situations. You ever heard somebody say something like that? 
I have. I've probably said it myself in the past, thinking, hey, that's kind of a cute thing to say. But I want you to think about what you're really saying when you say that about God's character and God's nature. What you're saying is you have come lovingly before the Father and you have said, a part of my character is patience. And God, I want to live for you. I want to evidence patience. And so here's God. (laughs) I was waiting until he said that. And he lowers the boom on you and every horrible circumstance that you can experience is visited upon you. Is that what a good father does? And I would submit to you, no. Another thing that I've heard is this. Don't say to God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Because in so doing, you will go to the worst place on earth to serve as a missionary forever, right? The idea is God is there waiting for us to mess up by asking that and then torturing us when we yield to His will. I'll tell you, I raised three boys. And if one of my kids came to me and said, Dad, I really want to please you. You know, Dad, I, I, I really want to deepen in my, my, our relationship. You know, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. That would melt my heart as a father. It's not something that I would look at and say, oh, man, I was waiting. Now I want you, and I'd start the chores, and then I would give them every job that they hate. That's not what I'm going to do. And Jesus' point in this passage is, that's not what God is going to do either. As a matter of fact, it's such a misconception because the best way to guarantee that you will experience some of the things that you would rather avoid is to be disobedient. Leave your finger here in Matthew. And if you need a pew Bible, they're on the back of the pew. But turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. I want us to turn there rather than putting it on the screen. And I want us to think about what the Word of God says as far as discipline from the Lord. And it begins in the fifth verse of this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So here's the idea. I'm a child of God. If I am off track and I need to be brought on track, the Father will lovingly do what is required to get me back on track. That's what a loving Father does. 
as a father, if my kids wanted to play in traffic, I didn't look at them and say, oh, I wish they wouldn't do that, but I'm not going to intervene. What did I do? I would say, cut it out. If they insisted on it, then they would be disciplined to redirect them and point them in the right direction. This is what a good father does for us. When we ask of God, let's not expect God to say, how can I mess up their lives now that they've asked this? Let's understand that there is a loving father behind that, and he has my good, my best in mind, and I should trust God and his goodness as I seek him. We are broken. We are sinful people, but we have to have the right perspective about the God who is not bound by sin, not bound by brokenness, and we need to see Him as the God who does what is best. Now, does that mean that I'll never encounter difficulty as long as I am praying to God and asking these things of God? No. But here's what we can rest assured in. If there is a less painful, better way to accomplish God's purpose in stretching us and developing our faith, God will choose that path. We can come with confidence before our God when we pray that He is a good God and that He is doing what is for our good. Now the text continues. And as we come to the next part of this passage, verse 12, excuse me, I forgot to flip past that. <laughs> we find that not only are we to pray to a good God, and that will lead us to good things. But we ourselves are to pursue what is good. And as we come to this 12th verse, we find a rule that probably many of you have heard from the time that you were little, and that is the golden rule. And what it's telling us is this, people should be treated in a good way by us. You know, as we look at our society, our society has grown more and more coarse, hasn't it? The idea of common courtesy is not so common. We get wrapped up in our own little worlds, and we fail to think about the needs of other people or how they might like to be treated. We're learning more and more from our culture that it's all about me and what I want. But here the Word of God is calling disciples of Jesus Christ to live differently. When we look in the Scripture, we see passage after passage after passage that describes to us what the golden rule looks like, right? We find passages that talk about how we are to tell the truth, how we are to be guided in a way that doesn't allow anger to drive our decisions, how we're to be faithful in our marriages, how we're to avoid violence. There are so many insights in the Word of God as to how I'm to practice the golden rule. Look at what Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, catch the last part of this passage. For this is the law 
and the prophets. Want to sum up the Word of God? Treat others in a way that you would like to be treated. Now, this requires thinking outside ourselves. When we look at this passage of Scripture, what Jesus is calling us to is being aware of the needs of the people around us. That isn't something that comes natural or normal to us. Because of our sin nature, we're going to gravitate more toward the things that are self-oriented rather than looking to the needs of other people. But as I talk about people or to people, the golden rule can guide me in my conversation. How many of us, when we start to gossip, ask ourselves, would I want someone to say this about me? How many of us, when we slander somebody else, speak poorly of them, would say to ourselves, would I want somebody to talk about me in this way? How many of us, when we give someone a piece of our mind that we just can't afford to lose, are going to stop and think in that moment, would I want someone talking to me in this way? Would I want them to be that crude and rude in their conversation? These are things that Jesus is calling us to. What about the way we treat one another? Treat others in a way that we would want to be treated. Unfortunately, this even applies to behind the wheel, right? We get into our four-door fortress, and we're thinking, he who sits highest has the right of way. And we're going to be rude in the way that we treat others. You know, something that stands out to me, when Paula and I go to Cape Cod, there's a ton of traffic on Cape Cod. Do you know what I've noticed? If you are trying to get into the traffic, they actually stop and let you in. It was jaw-dropping the first time I went there because I've gotten used to Chicago, right? They see you starting to pull out, speed up, or they might get in, right? What is it about us that makes us do things like that? We're not thinking about the needs of others. God wants us to think about the needs of others, to live out the golden rule, to treat others by thinking outside ourselves about how they might want to be treated because that's the way I would want to be treated. That is being a good disciple of Jesus Christ. And believe me, in our culture today, if you do that, you will stick out like a sore thumb. And you will represent the kingdom of Christ very well. Last part of the passage. As we pursue what is good, we need to choose the path that leads to good. Look at verse 13 and notice what Jesus says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. 
and those who find it are few. Now, here's a huge perspective. Jesus is giving us an image of a path that forks. And at the fork, there are two gates. One gate is wide. And you look past the gate and you see a wide path that is tamped down. A lot of people have gone that path. And as you look at it, you say, wow, that would be an easy path to follow. Because it's well-packed, it's level, looks like the easier path. But here's the problem. That path leads to destruction. Jesus' illustration is clear. There are many who are traveling that path away from God, choosing the way that in the moment would appear easier, but it's the wrong path. It leads to destruction. I think one of the most sad words used in this passage is the word many, because there are many who take that path. As a child of God, we look at it, and we need to remember Many of our co-workers are on that path. Many of our neighbors are on that path. Many of our family members are on that path. Many of the people that we see on TV or pass on the street are on that path. Jesus is reminding the disciples that their work is cut out for them. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, your work is cut out for you as well. Now, there are some who teach a universal salvation. Some who have the idea that everybody gets to heaven, a lot of different paths to the top of the mountain. Just choose any of those wide paths and you'll get there. But what the Word of God tells us is something quite different. Jesus told His disciples in the upper room, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Word of God warns us that many have found the path that leads to destruction. And that is an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus Christ to share with them that there's an exit ramp, that they don't have to follow that path to its end. We can share the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells them that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We share with them that their sin separates them from God. We share with them that God has made a way to provide for that sin by sending His one and only Son into the world to die on the cross for their sin, that they might leave that path that leads to destruction and find the narrow path 
that path that follows and finds Jesus Christ. So important for us to communicate that truth with a lost world. Unless and until a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they are on the wide path that leads to destruction. They have taken the wrong gate. But look at what else Jesus says in this text. In addition to this wide gate, verse 14 tells us, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to, first of all, be grateful that God led me to the right gate and the right path. And I need to recognize that even though often I surround myself with people of like faith, and I don't really like to think about people on the other path, there's a reality there that I have to face. And I need to, while giving thanks for being on the narrow path, be concerned with those who are on the broad path. According to the Religion and Public Life Project by Pew Research Center, there are 2.8 or 1.8 billion Christians worldwide, which is about 31% of the world's population of 6.9 billion as of 2010. About 50.1% are Catholic, 36.7% Protestant, and 11.9% Orthodox. Now, those are just the people who consider themselves Christians, one-third or thereabout the world population. But understand this, just because a person considers himself a Christian does not mean that they have a relationship with God. God isn't interested in our labels. God isn't interested in the way we identify ourselves when it comes to our faith. He looks to the heart. I would submit to you that the number of people who have committed their life to Jesus Christ by faith, that He is their only hope of salvation, that it is not their works that save them, but the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is only a sliver of that 30%. When we look at that wide path, it is wide indeed. This is why Oaklawn Bible Church shares the gospel. There are many lives at stake. This is why Oaklawn Bible Church supports the work of missions around the world. There are many lives at stake. And this is why as a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to have a heart for those who have found the wrong gate and are on the wrong path. This morning we have seen that we serve and we follow a good God. We can come to Him in prayer and knock and the door is open. We have open access to God, but not everyone enjoys that open access. 
there are many who are confused and deceived that need to hear the truth of how to get on the narrow path that leads to life. May we all pray for our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers, and yes, even our enemies, that they will find that narrow path. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that you are a good God, that you love us, that you have opened the way for us to know you and experience a life with you. And God, my prayer is this morning that if there is one who is not sure what path they are on, that they would speak to me or to TJ or to Dan, and we would love the opportunity to share with them how they can know that they have the outcome of life rather than destruction. God bless each one who has sat under the word today. May we worship you, love you, serve you in the way that we should. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.